1: Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Movie Scramble Podcast. Today we are going to be continuing our Hitchcock theme where we are taking two Hitchcock films with similar themes and basically discussing them. It's a full house today. I am joined by John.
0: John, how are you doing? Pretty good, pretty good, yeah. Saturday morning, I'm actually at my bed, which is obviously very nice. And I would say fantastic, but, you know, you always have to have something to aim for, so I'm not going to go that high just yet this early in the day. Exactly. You don't
1: want to, you don't want to hit the bar when you get up in the morning because you have nothing to yeah. reach for today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mary, how are you doing? You've probably been up since about six in the morning, going for runs and things like that. <coughs>
2: I wish. No, I actually scheduled this pod for a living because I know that John likes a long lie and a Saturday they're sacred <laughs> for me as well. So
1: long <laughs> lies and a Saturday, sacred, yes. It should be a law that you can come yeah, for a I certain time.
2: Yeah, and obviously like we don't have kids or anything like that. So like it, it we're not disturbed by <laughs> anyone's soap proper as a long lie. Like I would not get my bed until one or two if I didn't have to.
1: <laughs> I can't believe you've just Baby Yoda so quickly. <laughs>
2: Oh, I should have worn my ears today. I've got ears now. You guys look like remotely impressed. <laughs> I love them. <laughs> should have worn them. Damn it, next
1: time. For those listening to the podcast, uh, you can't see me and John see. And what, you can't, what we can see is just Mary not wearing baby Yoda ears. So if you can imagine that, <laughs> that's what we can see. <laughs> but yeah, let's say. But well, Today we're going to be discussing two Hitchcock films. And I think it's was Mary's idea to do the Hitchcock box uh, uh, based on the fact that we all have the same Hitchcock box set. Sorry, it was John's idea. John's idea of the Hitchcock box set. I've had this box set personally for about 13 years. I've only started watching it <laughs> <laughs> within the last year, which is ridiculous when you think about it. But it's good because I'm starting to see films that I've never seen, including one we'll speak about today. The one we're going to speak about first, though, Psycho, is a movie I have seen many times. So I should just put it out. It's Psycho and Frenzy, two films by Hitchcock, filmed over 10 years apart but both have the theme of a serial killer. Now, if you've been following Twitter recently and social media in general, you'll see serial killers at all the rage. But I'm not going to start naming names, I have this podcast sued so by defamation. But <laughs> we all know who I'm talking about with our
0: crazy DMs, don't we? Yeah, best not to call them by their name. Yeah. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's the best joke ever. <laughs> Oh, that was amazing! So smooth! Yeah,
1: if you do want to know who we're talking about, you can check some social networks.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I can't think of any more jokes because I've not even seen anything, so (laughs) it'll be films I haven't seen, shocker.
1: The first movie we're going to speak about today is 1960s classic Psycho.
0: Here we have a quiet little motel when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime. you have a vacancy?
2: No, oh, we have 12 vacancies. You know this is the first place it looks like it's hiding from the world? I think
0: that we're all in our private traps, clamped in them, and none of us can ever get out.
1: Now, let's, I'm just going to get us out of the way just For me, this is Hitchcock's best film. It's one of my personal favourite movies. I just think it's an absolute masterpiece. Before we start discussing the plot in that, are we going to discuss spoilers regarding this film? Now, I only mention it because it's kind of like Empire Strikes Back. It's became such ingrained in pop culture that yeah, there's people that aren't going to know about it. But if anybody's listening to this podcast interested in Hitchcock, chances are you're going to know the ending of this movie.
0: Do we touch on that, or do we try
1: and skirt around it?
0: I think we just go for it. It's like I say, it's so iconic. So many people know about it that it's probably one of the biggest sort of spoilers out there. So, yes, it's it's not really revealing anything that hasn't been told a thousand times before.
1: Excellent, that sounds good to me. So,
0: the plot: we start off with Marion
1: Crane, played by Janet Lee, and she works for a real estate agent. She's having some money issues. She would like to get married to her fiance, and she ha- and she's entrusted to deposit forty grand into the bank. She gets this money in cash and she decides, you know what, I'm just going to steal this. And mm-hmm. she just disappears. She makes a run for it. While on the run, you see a fall out of a local, I don't know if it's a sheriff, of the sheriff's department, but local law enforcement who's suspicious of the fact that she's been on the kind of, she, she seems a bit kind of edgy, a bit kind of shady. But she manages to lose him and she's driving for a while, gets tired, pulls off at a local motel. The this motel looks bad, but doesn't seem to be getting much in the way of any kind of business, and is run by a young man called Norman Bates, played by the absolutely incredible Anthony Perkins. Up until this point, the movie runs like a very classic Hitchcock thriller. It then takes an incredibly drastic turn, which we'll discuss. As we said, we're going to we're going to spoil this movie, but before we get to that. What is your, I want to know your thoughts on this movie. John, will go with your first and share, next to I me on the screen. What's your thoughts on Psycho as a movie overall?
0: It's pretty close to perfection, as far as I'm concerned. It is probably the best Hitchcock film I've seen, although that's debatable. There are a number of them that are sort of top tier, right up there. But yes, this is just uh, a perfect film it covers so many bases it goes through so many different genres you're talking about like the start of it it's almost like about like a melodrama and then you've got a thriller aspect and then there's a horror and then you go back to sort of more of a sort of psychological film so it's paced perfectly you are built up to a major point in it and from there it then goes up and down and up and down and it just keeps the audience totally engaged which is exactly what you want and it has the element of surprise and it breaks certain conventions within filmmaking and storytelling as well that were so unusual at the time, they're more prevalent now I'd like to say but they were so unusual at the time that it made this film exactly what it is
1: Yeah, definitely, I agree 100% Mary, what's your thoughts on Cycle?
2: Yeah, I mean I I agree with John, it is it's pretty much perfect. I imagine for 1960 this was probably quite shocking and not just in its kind of salaciousness, I mean in just the kind of style of cinema that it was. I mean, purposefully chosen to be, you know, shot in black and white. There's a lot of interesting techniques used throughout. Like you'll see ca- uh, characters almost walking into the, the camera, and there's intense, you know, eye contact throughout. There's a lot of shadowing, there's a lot of foreshadowing for other Hitchcock movies. And I think it's a film that I think, and certainly this was my experience re-watching this for this pod. I kind of took it for granted because you kind of, you know, it's like the shrieking violins, the the stabbing motion that everybody kind of knows, and it's almost become a sort of caricature of itself. And then I watched it again this time and I and obviously you guys know I was messaging me on the group chat and I was so taken in by Anthony Perkins. I was actually, I had tears of my eyes at some points. It's a flawless performance from him and it's just yeah, I mean it's not my favourite Hitchcock but it's definitely, it's like up there as one of the greatest films of all time. It really is. It's, it's perfect. Definitely. And
1: let's just, let's just cut to the chase here in terms of the, the twists. This is a movie that has two major twists. One comes at the midway point, and that's when our would-be lead actress, the, the star of the movie seemingly, is brutally murdered in a shower scene, and we are led to believe at this point she is murdered by Norman's jealous and vengeful mother. Now, when we first meet Norman, he seems like a very shy and fidgety kind of person, but when he speaks about his mother, who he lives with, it gets quite intense and we hear them having arguments with her up in the house, and his mother isn't happy with the fact that this woman could be there to corrupt her Norman and lead them away with temptation and stuff. So she takes it upon herself to remove that threat. And it's this. the scene is incredibly violent without being gratuitous. It's not gory, really, in any way, but it is shocking. As you said, Mary... For the 60s especially, it would have been shocking and so massively cut as well. For a shower scene, there's not really any nudity, so to speak, in terms of how the censors would define nudity. Like a nipple, <laughs> for example. It's very interestingly shot and cut. And even the the knife, you don't really see it penetrate the skin, but it doesn't make it any less brutal. And it's mm-hmm. for, a, for a very iconic scene as well in cinema, it's over very quickly. And then yeah. it's just done. And that score, that iconic score, um, just stops. And you've got that tracking shot that takes you out of the motel, up into the house, and you hear Norman screaming at his mother, what have you done? Yeah.
2: I think for me as well, it's the bit where she grabs the shower curtain and the hooks just come off one by one and it's almost like plucking a a string like a a violin and then her face hits the floor and you just see like you know her mouth sort of slightly distorted because the way it's hit the tile and you know her eyes are wide open and it's just that to me is more horrific than like any of the the stuff I don't know why but that always really gets me it's just the fact that she's just she's so like she's just been discarded the way she's left. Uh, and it's it's undignified as well, because obviously, and although it's not like a sexualized thing, because you don't really see much of her body. But, you know, it's that whole idea of she's just left there and she's kind of on display and anyone could walk in. And it just it feels that kind of grubby uh, way. But yeah, uh, it's one of the most iconic scenes in, in cinema and, and rightfully so. But it must have been, again, Really quite sure Janet Lee, massive star, you know, was really, really hitting her peak. And what an hour into this movie, <laughs> she's bumped off. Like, it, it must have yeah. been like, cinema goers must have been like, what? It must have been really unbelievable.
1: Yeah, and it's a fact as well, it's not only does it kill the biggest star in the movie, you're watching this movie, like, cold, and you think to yourself, yeah, she stole some money for an employer. It's mm-hmm. going to be a kind of chase thing, typical Hitchcock type idea, you know, crime thriller, chase across
0: America type idea. Oh wait, where is this going? Yep, especially <laughs> when he does the the clean up afterwards, and he doesn't discover the money. So you you realise, wait well, a minute, mean, it's not about the money at all. This isn't you know the the money goes into the boot of the car and uh, gets disposed off with the body. So you're kind of going, wait, so what what are we talking here? What type of person is this guy? You know.
1: That's so I was going to just say uh, you mentioned that scene there as well with tidying up that's such a and meticulous scene it's so unnerving because you're right you're like what kind of guy is this this isn't somebody that's doing this for the first time mm-hmm. yeah. and but it's also something that's clearly shocked by the murder He looks he's visibly distraught and upset but he wants to protect his mother as we're led mm-hmm. to believe at this stage
2: yeah and i think that's the thing like there's such a there's such a calm over it, like although he does appear like quite frantic, and he's like gasping and he's kind of shaking as he's sort of dragging her out of the the tub or whatever. There is a sort of a kind of practical right. Like, okay, well, I'm going to get you wrapped up, and but and it, it does make you go, okay, this is a guy that's very very used to to taking after or looking after his his mother, as you see, and it, it sort of calls back that intensity of the the prior scene where you know. Marion's making suggestions about you know you could go out in the world and you could be anything and you could meet a girl and that kind of you know steeliness comes over his eyes that isn't quite there up until that point and it does make you wonder right okay what kind of relationship does this guy have with his mother and is she controlling him you know what because we are in the same position as Marion we hear the insults coming from the house and him screaming in shock at what his mother's done and you just assume, obviously if it's your first time viewing if you've seen it more than once not, you just assume that it's, it's mother that's doing all the, the dictating as to what goes on in that motel.
1: Yeah, you see the scene in the shower itself, it's everybody has the, everybody remembers the shower curtain been pulled back and the face is in darkness, you can't see and the knife's there and it's the score but for me the most the scariest bit of that scene is before you see the door opening through the shower curtain, mm-hmm. there's no music. Mm-hmm. It's just it's it's framed and you're watching it and oh, they've got um Janet Lee in the shower, your eyes are drawn to this dead bit of screen, you're going, right? That's framed or that for a reason, what's gonna happen there? And you just see the door open and the figure walking towards, and I think that is terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. And this is a film that probably terrified people going to shower, for God's sake.
2: I was gonna say either terrifying going in the shower or sales of shower curtains must have plummeted <laughs> after this. <laughs>
0: Well, it's all feeding on Cold War paranoia and things like that as well. It was basically saying, you're you're safe nowhere. You know, you, you kind of think, like, if you think about it, when people get upset, they, they run to the bathroom and have a good cry or whatever. So even the bathroom is out of bounds now. You just can't protect yourself there. There's, there's nothing safe, you know. They can get you always. It's not, I mean, obviously it was done again with Jaws in the 70s. It wasn't safe to go in the water, you know, but this is even worse. It's you're in an enclosed space anyway. And it just, just kind of heightens the fact that anything can happen to you. And it's it's not a pleasant feeling at all.
2: I was going to say, it's just interesting because at the start of this movie, you're like, she's automatic, well, not maybe painted as a, a villain as such, but she's clearly, you know, her relationship is with a man who's still married. They're sneaking around in motels She's stolen money. She's on the run. So she's not necessarily like portrayed necessarily as virtuous, But And she seems more in command when she's having the conversation with Norman as well. She's a sort of woman of the world and more wise. And obviously she's been smart enough to like swap her car around and, you know, give a fake name and all this. So she's not necessarily portrayed as this innocent victim. But the minute she gets in that shower, she's, you know, obviously quite literally naked, but defenseless as well. And as you see, as soon as that door opens, you're just like, you know, and you don't, the thing is at the time, I imagine maybe people wondered oh is it somebody coming after the money or is it you know because you've already seen Norman sort of looking through the little people? is it Norman coming to watch her in the shower? There was actually sort of no certainties as to who was walking through that door as well yeah. and because the setup had been that she was a bad woman it, it could have been any number of things. Yeah and the
1: whole thing, you can imagine the money there as well, it's, that, uh, it's, a, plot, it's a plot device just to get the character to that motel, there is, mm-hmm. it's, it's not it's not actually part of the story. Yeah. sorry, it's, it's, it's not the main part of the story. It's not what the story is about. Mm-hmm. It's a very good misdirection in a sense as well. And I think uh, I don't know if Hitchcock coined the term, but they call it a uh, MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they do the same. Uh, Indiana Jones as well. But yeah, I mean, it's like yeah, I should forget about the money after the murder.
2: Yeah, I think important. up until that point, up until that point, it's still in your head because she had written a little note and she'd worked out how much she'd spent and stuff like that. So I think it's still in your head up until that point. And then it's almost like, as you say, it becomes like a totally different movie almost and the money's totally irrelevant. Yeah, A a
0: couple of stats for that particular scene. It took seven days to shoot it. It's 90 seconds long. It had 78 different setups and 52 cuts within those 90 seconds. And they brought in Saul Bass, the Titles guy, to right. aid on it as well, so that it would have this sort of really sort of stylish look to it. And the, the reason it got through the sensors and everything, like you say, was because everything is left to your imagination. There is nothing there. You, you imagine more than there actually is on screen. And it's a device that has been used successfully since then if you think about it like so if has used it to great effect with the ear cutting scene if you talk to people about it say oh it's horrible seeing me gets his ear cut off and all that and you say but you didn't see anything it's exactly the same here you don't see in fact you don't see any blood in that scene until the very end of it you don't see blood yeah. going down the drain you don't see blood on the shower curtain it's only afterwards when she's actually lying on the tiled floor do you see a, a, just a wee bit of blood And that's that's amazing. That's that's absolutely incredible.
2: It's another reason why it was shot in black and white as well, because the censors were all over it. And of course, if you shoot in black and white, maybe the blood's not as obvious. But yeah, I mean, they had a lot of problems with the various, not just that scene, that was obviously the biggest issue they had in terms of censorship, but just the whole thematics of it and the idea of, oh, I don't know if I like to, we are doing spoiler jet, and the idea of a man dressing up as a woman as well and how he was going to be sort of categorised and, You know, the sort of psychoanalyst scene at the end was totally shoehorned in and Hitchcock hated it, but they just did it because they felt like it would clear things up and just, yeah, he had so many problems with this that he actually just became kind of like, not disgusted with it, but there are rumours that he just kind of walked off set and told people to piss off and he was going to do things his own way. And he just, he became quite angry about shooting it because there were so many people telling him what he could and couldn't do. And he just wanted to make this really good, scary movie as he saw it. Yeah, and this
1: is a movie that wasn't very well received by critics when it came out. Which is, I I know we've discussed this with many films in the past, like uh, The Shining, for example, how people look at it now as one of the most important movies ever made. But at the time, that was not the general consensus. And that's why sometimes you don't want to be too harsh in a film that comes out now. Because you don't know how it's going to be looked upon in 20 years' time. You just don't know. But the idea that the thing with Psycho was, it was interesting was it was a box office smash. It wasn't like The Shining, for example, where it failed at the box office and critics were a bit kind of not sure either. And now they're mm-hmm. retrospective look upon it as one of the greatest movies ever. Audiences love Psycho. And mm-hmm. you still see stuff like that to this day where critics can keep a bit snobbish where a film saying, Ugh. I mean, yeah, it doesn't well be like the box office, but it's shite. Mm-hmm. So, well, clearly, even if it is a shite popcorn munching film, whatever you want to say about it millions of people are going to see it. it must yeah. be doing something right. It was something like Psycho. It just did prove that the audiences were correct and that this was a movie that sh- was going to endure. And regarding the kind of the mid-movie twists and stuff, Hitchcock had a no late admission policy he insisted on yeah. it in the theatre. It didn't want people to turn up late for it. and It makes sense. Now, I think that should be imposed anyway in most films, but <laughs> definitely with this, I mean I don't know if you're up up an hour into a film I don't know why you'd bother, yeah. but this is a movie you don't want to miss anything
2: yeah. I think it yeah. became a sort of word of mouth hit as well and I always remember, just as an aside, my dad telling me when he went to see The Exorcist there was priests standing outside saying, you know, don't go in and see this film, Like it's, it's going to be bad for your soul and to this day he's like I don't know if that was a marketing tool or whatever but it just made people want to go and see the movie. He was like I don't know if they were real priests but the bottom line what people were saying you know you have to go and see this movie from the start is that kind of whole word of mouth like oh it must be really exciting and you know Hitchcock was doing movie marketing way before that was even a thing.
1: And the thing is John, you kind of mentioned about the idea of uh, the man dressing up in the, oh, sorry but who said that maybe I'll there, about the man dressing up in his clothes type idea and uh, like um... Being a stuff, and it could be controversial. I find that's even been re looked at these days. But Norman Bates is not a transsexual. He's not a transvestite. He's not someone dressed up in women's clothes for any other reason. And he genuinely believes he is his mother. And that's an, inc- that's an incredible, powerful twist. And we can get to the end of the movie here where we have Marion's lover and sister who try and track her down and they get to the motel they think Norman's a killer, but so do we, so, so we don't think Norman's a killer, but we think his brother is. And you get the infamous scene where Vera Miles goes out the basement and you think it's Mrs Bates sitting on the chair, and the chair turns around and it's a corpse, and at that point you're like, whoa, what? Because I watched Psycho 2 before watching Psycho, so I already knew, knew the ending, I never <laughs> watched this film called um, Wow, does, what an like, admission to make. <laughs> I've I, I seen Psycho 2 and I was like way too young to be watching it. I don't even know what you would think at that point. I don't know if you, I don't think your mind would automatically go, well, Norman's called cool the killer dressing up his mum's clothes. I don't think you would. It's just too much of a leap. And yeah. then she she hits the light bulb, she turns around and Norman's standing in the doorway. And that's when you first, you're like, I think, I don't know how your mind would comprehend that. You try to join the dots and I think it, I don't mind the fact that they put that scene in with Psychoanalyst explaining stuff. I think it makes sense to do so
2: because I think it's it's too long and it's too wordy and I think that it's one of those things where I remember the first time I saw it I mean I totally shit myself every time that chair spins round but I just kind of assumed because the first time I watched it I remember like obviously Norman says like you know she had a boyfriend And it was a shame because you know, he died and then his mom died. I remember the more this went on and his sheaf got flipped out in the chain, I was like, Norman's bumped her off. And then you see him. I didn't make the leap to and then he's dressing up as her. Like I just kind of thought, right, well, he's obviously bumped her off. But I think that I think they try to make it out as a sort of like kind of psychosexual thing, like he was getting kicks out of dressing up as a woman in order to commit the murders, but that definitely isn't the case. As you say, it's you know, he firmly believes that he is, when he's in those clothes, he is his mother and he has conversations as his mother. So I don't think there's anything untoward, but I always feel like that scene at the end is just, you know, explain it to me like I'm a viewer. Like, I think it's one of those films where you can kind of draw your own conclusions from it and you don't need that kind of shoehorned in. (laughs)
1: I suppose I need to see it without with that scene and see what they put in its place because I don't know how the movie would have been otherwise. Like for me, one of the most terrifying scenes in the entire film is the last scene when he's sitting when it's Mrs. Bates is taking over and no. Norman's in the cell with a blanket over him and he kind of shivers and it, it just kind of it looks it looks like a wee old lady mm-hmm. the way he's kind of he these stands and stance like, as I saw. I wouldn't even hurt a fly. It looks straight at the camera and I'm like, oh, that's in the movie. Yeah, that's that's horrific. Yeah. I don't know how that scene would have played out without anything in between to try and join the dots. So, so it's all it's all very well leaving the interpretation stuff. I just don't know yeah. how it would have worked without something to at least say, right, heals what we think's happened.
2: Yeah I mean, I, I, mean I, I get that but I just don't think it needs to be maybe as wordy. One thing I did notice this time which I haven't noticed before is when Marion is driving away from the office and she's stolen the money and how she's imagining the conversations about what they're going to say when she, fa- like so she's looking but she's looking at the road obviously but she is looking into the camera there's a slight smirk goes across yes. her face and it's the first time I've ever gone that's the exact same as the end scene. And it just that beautiful bit of mirroring when I was just like, oh my God, and she's hearing the voices and the, the little smirk comes across her face. And I've never actually noticed that before. And I was like, this is the best film ever. This is so good.
0: So what did you think about the changes in the way that it was kind of shot between the two sort of halves? Like to begin with, it was all reasonably, I know, like I said, it was in black and white, but it was kind of bright when they were in the, the motel, hotel room together, the, the couple, it was all bright and she was wearing white and everything like that. And it was all quite nice, you know, it was ordinary. But then when she ends up at the, the motel, she's speaking to Norman and then she says, oh, I'm really tired, um, I'm going to go, mm-hmm. you know, go to my bed, have a shower, whatever. As soon as he goes back into the office, it's darker. There are more shadows, it's lit from below. So you're seeing all the shadows coming up and you're seeing the shadows of him and you're seeing the shadows of like the owls and the, the, the crows and things like that and they're all being projected against the wall, it just makes it so much more sinister right away and you, you don't really, you get a, a kind of a vibe from Norman to begin with that says he's a bit shy, he's a bit awkward, especially around single women. But then after that it just kind of changes, he becomes more sort of upright and more purposeful and everything as well and that's even before he's started having to clean up after his mother, it just seems to be when he's alone he's more of himself.
1: Yeah uh, I get that, and it's, I might notice that um, when he's speaking to Sam, when he's speaking to Marion's lover, it has a lot more assurance about him, it's almost like he's trying to uh, play the alpha male, albeit badly, he speaks very differently to the male characters in the movie than the female characters. He's not intimidated by the males. He's intimidated by the women, and maybe that's because he knows. Well, there's a lot, lots of different reasons for that. He's socially awkward, but also he knows if he gets too close to them, they're going to die. But with the guy, he's like with Sam. He's like he's trying to act like the hard man. He's trying to act tough, and he's just acting guilty as fuck, basically, <laughs> but in a different way—not in a kind of guilty a like nervous way the way Marion was earlier, and a very assuredness about him, which you don't see at any other point in the film, and I find it really interesting.
2: Yeah, I think like see what John said about the the shadows lighting up. What's interesting is the the scene between him and Marion previous to that. You know, they're both sitting down, they're both on the like. There's a kind of sense of equality between them because they're both facing each other and, and sitting down, she was off to her room and he goes back into that little kind of parlour or office bit and as you see it's all lit from below and the shadows cast up the wall and all of a sudden it makes him look more sort of like ghoul-like because you know, of the the lighting and it obviously hits off like cheekbones and stuff and at that point although it's just like a kind of subtle change in the lighting then he just goes and moves the picture out of the way or whatever, and you see he's got the whole cut in the and you're like Whoa, this guy, you know, he's playing a blinder because 10 minutes ago he was fumbling, you know, he couldn't get his words out properly. He looked like he was, you know, had tears in his eyes when he was talking about being stuck there forever. And all of a sudden, just that lighting change, you get a totally different side of him as a a character as well. And yeah, it's it's so cleverly done, It's, it's brilliant.
0: And that kind of mirror that scene there, who you're talking about, that mirrors the end of the shower scene as well, because when he's watching her, it's a close up of his eye that you get. And he doesn't really mm-hmm. blink at all. He's obviously just taking everything in. And then, as you say, at the end of the shower scene, you see Marion lying on the floor, unblinking for obvious reasons that she's not breathing either, you know? <clears throat> so, yeah, it works particularly well that way, I thought.
2: And also, the thing with the birds as well is the birds was actually Hitchcock's next movie. But what I love about that scene where you notice them all on the wall is he talks about being stuck in a, a trap. And it kind of mirrors. I don't if you remember the speech at the start of the birds, where you know you're in your gilded cage, Melanie Daniels, and it's talking about being stuck in this particular life. And that's what I mean about there's so much foreshadowing for later films. And even the trick of looking straight into the camera. I mean, that's lifted straight out of Shadow of a Doubt, which obviously was a, a previous movie. But what I love about Hitchcock's movies is if you watch them all together, you're like, yeah. You ha- I mean, he's very much the auteur. He had so many different themes and little tricks and little looks to camera that you're like. This is just perfect and I can just tell it's one of your movies and this is why I love them so much.
1: Uh, Regarding the foreshadowing as well, it seems to like talking about taxidermy quite a lot and we find out why he's so good at it. (laughs) (laughs) Um.
2: Listen, I, I really like, I'm torn because every time, as I say, when I watch this movie again this time I was totally captured by Perkins you know his hands are shaking and he's talking about you know he's not had much of a life and there are kind of tears in his eyes and he just seems so pathetic and part of me is like is this a kind of nature versus nurture thing was his mother when she was alive so domineering that she's turned him into the person that he is or has he just always been a psychopath and I I genuinely am torn because he does seem like obviously he's pretending to be his mother and himself but that change in personality he does seem to be genuinely two different people so I'm kind of intrigued by like and I watched that Bates Motel, the series, and it didn't give me the answers I was looking for. So,
1: <laughs> you're probably best watching the sequels then, The Psycho. And I know we always kind of laugh at horror <laughs> movies and that. But, John, have you seen any of the sequels? I've not seen any of the sequels at all, no. See, the second one, the second one, I've not watched the second one in a well, but I remember it being a very good film. It's set about 20 years after the first one, and it's mm-hmm. um, Norman's been let out in a mental institution.
2: I was going to say, like, how how is he back in society? (laughs) But
1: okay, they let him out. He has nowhere else to go but back to the old house. And people are suspicious. Is he really really, sane? Is he really um, reformed and stuff that rehabilitated? So he goes back to the house and everything seems okay. But then the killings start back up. And Norman isn't sure if it's him. He doesn't know if he's doing it or not. What? And it's basically him struggling with his own sanity. And I'd like to watch it again because I I really enjoyed it when I watched it. I thought it was a great movie. Um, Very interesting. It's good to see Anthony Perkins in the role again. A bit older, obviously, but he's still brilliant in it. He's still very good. The third one is more of a kind of like 80s slasher type idea. And it's fun, but it's not anything that the first movie was really kind of like. And then the fourth one's a prequel. So it's normal. It's Norman. Speak, it's actually like a. It's Norman speaking to a radio psychologist.
2: Uh
1: huh. And it starts. It starts talking about his past. So you go back to how he's a boy, and it would, it would give you the answers whether you like them or not, regarding how he is. How he is. Okay. I mean, that's kind
2: of that's my
1: interest lately. But I would watch Psycho. I would watch cycle too. I would recommend it.
2: I mean, you would recommend like cycle fourteen. <laughs> like let's be honest. Right.
1: I'm not recommending the remake, let's play. let's not go nuts.
2: Oh no, let's not go that far. Speaking of horror sequels, again one thing I noticed this time is see the scene where Arbogast, the detective, is in the Bates house and he's walking up the stairs and you just see him obviously climbing the stairs and there's silence and then all of a sudden Mother just fucking shoots out from the right and the violins are. Is that not the exact same as the scene in is it Exorcist 3? With the nurse it's literally just like somebody appears out of nowhere and you're just not expecting it and all of a sudden there's another murder.
0: Yeah it's been used as a kind of a standard horror trope I would say especially in the 80s horror films but yeah not so much around about then it was fairly unique I would say it wasn't.
2: Yeah that, that really used. makes me jump because mm. I can never get it's like the when the body breathes in seven I can never quite get the timing right as to when it's going to come and it always makes me sort of jump when it happens.
1: Yeah, or the, the, bod, the, the body in the boat and Jaws. Yeah. He's scuba diving. And it just appeals in the whole... And you know it's coming. And I remember, I've, I've seen Jaws in cinema a couple of times as well. See this this collective jump.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember every I went time. for that. I did not I seen Jaws in cinema for the last time, a couple of years ago. And it was something next time that I hadn't seen the movie before. What? And it got to that scene. And oh yeah, it was great. It
0: was great to experience. Did yeah. you
2: see their soul exit their body <laughs>
0: as they <laughs> left? <laughs> yeah, welcome everybody to the Movie Scramble spoiler podcast where we spoil uh-huh. films from all, all generations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: that's the last yeah. The Simpsons of Mayor Quimby the ch- and the chick and the kine game was really a man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a sledge. It was a sledge.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> I remember like, I got Gosford Park on DVD once I was at Gosford Park yeah. and I said to my dad well, I'm going to stick this on and he went oh is that the one where so and so is the murderer in this and I was like dad I've not seen this and he was like oh sorry oh you'll enjoy it anyway yeah. great.
1: my dad used to have a great obsession habit I don't know what to call it he would like to show me the end of movies
2: <laughs> why?
1: I don't know why uh, I always remember the two movies he would always show me the end of was uh, Breathless Spiritual Gear and Along mm. Longer Friday Bob Hoskins and nice. Like, and I'm sitting, I've do not see these films all the way through from start to finish. I don't have to. And <laughs> <laughs> well I see, oh, long the blah blah it puts it on and shows me the ending and they explained to me what happened. Because I obviously didn't know the plot. And I'm like, oh, that's bad, that's, that's quite a good twister. Yeah. I wouldn't have seen that coming. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's like uh, the sound of music. Surprise, the escape. <laughs> we might as well just go for all of the big reviews. <laughs>
1: Yep. I think that's why well, the sound that I'm not expecting the sound of music to have some kind of dark ending to be fair. Oh,
2: it'd be amazing if it did, wouldn't it?
1: <laughs> I mean maybe, maybe, maybe that's how my dad showed me cycle two first. He went, I could show you the twists in cycle, but take too long, so I'm just gonna show you cycle two, which recaps the first movie in the first five minutes.
2: And also lets you know that Norman's still kicking about.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And after that oh, what? The did, they, did they show you the crying game after that, yeah. Just uh, say <laughs> <laughs> he's got a bobby. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: no context spoilers. Just
1: <laughs> Do you know The worst thing is, though, it's the fact that like uh, I've seen so many other movies that have ruined classic uh, other classic twists. Like Ace Ventura ruined the Crying Game. Scary movie ruined the Usual Suspects.
2: Yeah, well, I remember you saying this because did you not watch Scary Movie before you watched the Usual Suspects, yeah. so you knew what happened?
1: But it was because someone said to me, "That's the same ending as usual suspects." I'm like, "Oh, what do they mean?" <laughs> and I'm watching, it like, "Oh, I get what they mean." That makes sense. <laughs> you know, it's like watching usual suspects for the first time, and the cops interrogating Kevin Space and saying, "You're the killer, you're said these scammed real buns, a scammed real buns uh, are killer, scammed real buns are the castle, so it's blah blah. But no, no, it's not true, it's not true. I'm going, no, it's not fucking true, is it? Um, <laughs> but anyway, I think it's safe to say. That Psycho is a recommend from me. Uh, this just seems kind of pointless to do. What we're going to do because tradition, John. Oh yeah, I uh, totally agree with you. Yep, classic. Eddie.
2: Yep, yeah, I mean it's it's flawless. It's just it's one of the best examples of a good horror movie that yes has jump scares, but they're used sparingly and they're used well.
1: If you get a chance to watch Psycho 2. it pops up on Netflix from time to time.
2: Okay, I mean, do you know what I used to think? Uh, again, oh Christ. Um, you should probably psychoanalyze this. I used to think Anthony Perkins was really handsome <laughs> as Norman Bates, so read into that what you will. So I, if it's on, I would watch it just to see what he looked like. Yeah, Yeah, it's a good-looking guy. The
1: psycho, you know, it's like a—it's not a getting away from that. But yeah, I didn't realize. I just, don't like, to, awesome.
2: I just don't like to admit to these things, just in case, like I'm put on some sort of list somewhere because I usually find that I'm only attracted to someone like once they start playing like a serial killer or a psychopath. So yeah.
0: Mary, you're, I already like these you're already on <laughs> these lists. Yeah, you're delusional if you think you're not. And uh, once you get your, your vaccine, Bill Gates will know about it as well. So you'll be you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you uh, <laughs> not already know about it.
1: So
2: oh no, I just if I'm if I'm looking for something like, for example, as I say, I only noticed how good looking uh, Tahar Rahim was in The Serpent, where he's obviously playing a disgusting serial killer. So I just go incognito from my little searches. <laughs> So
1: this podcast, I was going to say, is taking a dark turn. But if you heard, if we keep in any of the original chat at the beginning before we started, we just kind of went as we went on, basically, you know, continued yeah. as we started. Yeah. So that was psycho, and uh, if you haven't seen psycho, apologies—we've uh, just ruined it for you. I know probably ruined it
2: for you. Yeah.
1: <laughs> But if you have seen Psycho, just watch it again anyway because it's a fantastic movie, absolute classic as both John and Mary said, as close to if not perfection as you're going to get from a film. Just just absolutely stunning. Next up is uh, the 1972 British thriller Frenzy. I dare say you are wondering why I'm floating around London, like I'm on the famous Thames River investigating a murder. Rivers can be very sinister places, and in my new film Frenzy, this river, you may say, was the scene of a very
2: horrible murder.
1: I must admit that if it wasn't for this, pod- this podcast, if it wasn't for that box set, I wouldn't have heard of this movie. I wouldn't have known of it. To me, it's one of Hitchcock's lesser known films. I don't think it is. I think it is fairly known. Um, a lot of critics saw it as a return to form. After movies like uh, Topaz and Tom Cotton, which I thought was about half, because I thought Tom Cotton was really good, but this also deals with a serial killer theme, albeit in a very different way from Psycho. As this movie starts off with a murder and uh, explains how the cops are uh, investigating a serial killer known as the tie, is it the, the tie killer,
2: the
1: necktie strangler, the necktie strangler? It was sorry, yeah, the necktie strangler.
2: Look at me all Um,
1: buzzing for this. We have John Finch, who plays Richard Richard Blaney, unemployed barman, former RAF squaddy, who just basically kind of kicks about in his life, doesn't he? He just basically tries to kind of earn a buck here and there. And he, unfortunately, gets fingered as being an necktie strangler. And, yeah, you're laughing at that wee fingered comment there, but there's also a scene in this film. (laughs) When she mentions that at the bar,
2: oh what? yeah, you always like. I thought you were going to say the um, you're spelling your load scene, but that's something.
0: No. Else. Okay.
2: okay.
1: This does have more kind of Hitchcock themes to it. When I idea it's like uh, the innocent man being accused, uh, <laughs> even though the evidence against him is pretty overwhelming. <laughs> Okay. This is film I don't want to say too much about because I don't know a lot about this movie. So, if you want to spoil it, that's fine. And I say spoil, I use the term loosely because it might not be a spoiler. It could be part of the synopsis. I'm not as familiar with it in that idea. Um, I was watching this film completely fresh, completely cold. I had no idea what it was about. I had no idea who the killer was until I was watching it, that type of thing. But I enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. It was Hitchcock's penultimate movie but also seen as it was also his final British film and when you watch Psycho, for example, and then you go to this, it's a very different film in terms of... it's still Hitchcock, it's still got Hitchcock tropes in that, but stylistically because it's set in London, the actors, even just the accents, as stupid as that sounds, there's something quite, I feel a bit cheesy about it, the accents are either very fresh in your, fresh in your drink, governor, or ha, oh, how you doing, sir? <laughs> Very Sorry,
2: whereabouts in London is that? Yeah.
1: That's <laughs> cross London. It feels like those two very specific classes in this film.
2: Yeah, you've got your Barbara Lee Hunt who's got the clipped, like, you know, English accent, which is very like polite and everything. you know, she says you have peculiar interests and that really like, you know, her mouth barely moves, it's so tight. And then you have obviously like, you know, Bob Rusk who's like you know, five ball for some apples, governor sort of thing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and Richard Blaney seems to kind of like straddle these two worlds. Yeah. Being a very educated, a very educated man, it's clearly had a good upbringing. Mm-hmm. But now, can kind I of just kind of it about <laughs> and try sell money? But what
0: did you think of this movie? Did want I take it this isn't your first time watching it. No, John, you've oh. seen it before, yeah. Nope, never seen it before. This was, was uh, my. Yeah, my first introduction to it it's a very like you say it's a very different hitchcock film and that's got a lot to do with the way that cinema had changed in the late 60s i think more than anything else there was obviously the uh, sort of new american cinema movement which produced the likes of bonnie and Clyde and all these sort of films it sort of followed on from it the they were kind of classed sort of new auteurs really weren't they, you're talking about Mario uh, sorry, talking about Francis Ford Coppola and all these sort of guys, they, they changed the way that films were made and the, the way that films actually looked and Hitchcock obviously never one to sort of stand still pretty much did the same, he changed how the, the film looked, he went back to his roots in a way, and the fact that it was all um, seedy London streets and things like that there, there wasn't much polish or varnish on this film when you look back in these 50s and early 60s films even up to the likes of Torn Curtain which was all kind of glossy and you know they're on a boat and you know the the Norwegian fjords and all this sort of stuff it's nothing like that at all it's kind of more seedy and everything so in terms of that it was a bit of a departure yes there were a number of accents (laughs) In there as well. Obviously, not as many as Thomas of a Thousand Voices, but you know, (laughs) there was a few. (laughs) Uh, I didn't know whether I was going to like this based on the first sort of 10, 15 minutes because it was an awful lot of professional cockneys uh, that were there as well. But it did really, really engage me after the the, sort of the initial sort of take on it, which I I was surprised at. I, I really thought it was going to be a like a bit of a dodgy film, especially when I saw John Finch's uh, corduroy shoes. <laughs> I was kept kind of going, how do you get away with wearing corduroy shoes at any time? It's just, it's just never a fashion item, I'm sorry. But yes, I thoroughly enjoyed the film. It was almost like the the polar opposite to Psycho in terms of the way it depicted violence. Yeah, So everything, you, did, you know, it was, it went from, Use your imagination to. Well, hey, <laughs> here's another shot of a breast. You know that kind of thing. So there, there was that, but that was again down to the the times as well. You're you're talking more sort of Sam Peckinpah kind of style of violence there rather than using just what your own mind can conjure up. But yes, I did enjoy the film. I really did. Mary. Before... So, I, thought I was the same, Join the
1: first 10 minutes of this movie. I wasn't sure. I felt like I was watching an episode of The Sweeney.
0: Yeah, <laughs> aye. Yeah. An, an early version of EastEnders or something
2: like
0: that. Yeah. Danny Dyer to rock up. <laughs> <laughs> I was Apple Daily
1: to turn up at one point. I <laughs> mean, anyway, maybe you had seen this film before. So
2: Yeah, this, I think this is maybe my sixth time. Of watching this, it was actually. My dad is a bit of a Hitchcock aficionado, and he was like, I think you'd, I don't know why, I mean, I think you'd really like this. It's probably not a compliment when you know what the film is like. He was like, but you know, this was Hitchcock's sort of, you know, love letter to like the fruit stalls of London that he grew up in, and you know, it was the first movie I think he'd shot there since maybe The Man Who Knew Too Much. And it's just this kind of, yeah, it's almost like a goodbye to London, and he was like, I think you really like it. And then I watched it, and I was horrified because you're right it's everything that psycho isn't and i think that's kind of why i like it so much because from the outset you know the tone is set where you've got again this naked body floating down this like disgusting like shit colored water like it's like gray brown and just floating down and then you've got the barmaid who a couple of seconds later where you know her eyes are all dancing and she's like oh i heard he rapes them first and it's all very like it almost feels like Not a carry on movie because that's too ridiculous, but it almost feels like a sort of send up of a horror film because it's so ostentatious and it's like goriness or whatever, grubbiness, whatever you want to call it. And then it becomes this kind of, it's not, I'm going to disagree with you, so it's not really a typical Hitchcock in terms of the wrong man because. Blaney is set up as this kind of, like, he's a bum, he can't keep a job, he's, you know, he has this girlfriend, you know, he's maybe taking money out of the till at the bar and he's helping himself to drink, he's divorced and he clearly has a really bad temper, whereas, you know, on the flip side, you've got Bob Rusk, who's this this congenial sort of uncle type figure who, I'll give you 20 quid and I'll give you a tip in the races and have a bag of fruit, and it's all this kind of like, so he's kind of, he is set up as a very, very believable suspect but his rusk isn't and i kind of love the fact that it's the necktie strangler because like if you think of a necktie that's somebody who's maybe a gentleman and a wee bit more refined and of course it's the very thing that that makes him not so but i love this movie i love the way the silence is used throughout it i love the the tension and the, the sort of big scene between uh, bob ruskin and, and brenda and i just i think it's like if hitchcock had had free reign throughout it was, throughout his career and if he'd lasted a bit longer I think he would have done more like this I think it would become more and more salacious because I think he liked to sort of titivate people and actually make them think about maybe what their own you know kinks and preferences and dirty little secrets were and I think if he'd gone on longer he'd have done more like this but I I love this film so much It's it, to me it's it's right up there as one of Hitchcock's best
1: I do agree with what you're saying there I think this uh, is like Hitchcock doing what he's always wanted to do in a way because he can get away with it mm-hmm it's like his the senses of a bit more kind of relaxed now, so it's different kind of. Oh yeah, they have carry on by the, then, so like yeah, and
2: stuff like that. we all
1: you know everything was fine. He's like, I can show nipples. Excellent, getting about him. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of like, but yeah, that that scene in the bar, uh maybe kind of like raise my eyebrows a bit when we're talking about the rape. And, was it say something? But if you're lucky or something, uh-huh. and it's like, whoa, that's I don't know. I don't imagine that being. Okay, at the time, let alone now. But you said the way she kind of goes, Oh, what you like? And I'm like, Oh, man, this pub seems crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you're right. Like, the thing about Richard Blaine as well is a very believable killer. It's, it's mm-hmm. possible. I'm saying the overwhelming evidence against it, even if it's circumstantial or not. But unlike Psycho, where it has this big reveal twist, the big reveal in this movie, if you want to call it that, happens really mm-hmm. early on. There's not some mm-hmm. big, that twist in this movie. You mm-hmm. find out who the killer is really early, and you know he's not the killer. So it doesn't matter how violent he is, how believable he is. You know, as a viewer, he's innocent. But you keep thinking to yourself, how is he going to prove this because he looks so guilty?
2: Yeah. I just meant the setup between the two characters is quite. Yeah. Like, Although the reveal does come very early, the setup is very clearly designed to sort of throw you off the scent, as it were. Apparently, Michael Caine was offered the part of, of Bob Rusk and oh, turned it down because he said the movie was disgusting but can you imagine what that movie would have been like if it had been Michael Caine
1: oh I'd love it the, <laughs> offense, the, the offense to Mr Rusk God versus his soul but I would mean, be Michael Caine you should do more films <laughs> just, uh, he just was probably,
2: like, doing, uh, probably doing Jaws 3 at the time busy.
1: <laughs> I think you'll find it was Jaws 4 and that didn't come until about 15 years later
2: so I mean yeah I mean I think What's interesting for me is like that that whole extended sort of scene between Brenda and Bob. I think is really like I don't even know if you'd get away with putting that in a film now. Like it's quite, it's really really graphic. As first time viewers, like I mean, I'm not that I'm not that it doesn't shock me every time, but as first time viewers watching it, what did that? How did that play out for you guys?
1: For me, I wasn't sure if it was just how it was shot or it was was trying to get some interpretation that it was some kind of impotent rapist because there was something very strange about it in the sense that it just seemed very pathetic as much as a threat Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and almost like not pitying from a viewer point of view but self-pitying of himself and I wasn't too sure if that was a Duggar style or it was just how it it looks now, but I thought it was a very graphic scene. You do you do see enough. Mm-hmm. It is quite a horrible scene, but it's, um, yeah, it's it, it, it goes on quite long as well. I mean, compared to the cycle shiver scene, for example, which you say, John is 19 seconds, this seems to go on a lot in a long time, and yeah, as a rape scene, of course it's supposed to be horrible, mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't expecting to see it in a film, especially
0: made in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was uh, very voyeuristic, I thought. The yeah. whole scene, the way that it was shot, the way that there was a close up on the victim, an awful mm-hmm. lot. It didn't really pull away, like you say. It kind of overstayed its welcome in that respect. And the I, I can see the the impotence angle of it as well. The way that the rage that he felt when he was doing this. I, I thought it was quite interesting even before then. His mother get introduced into the film. Did he not get introduced to? She, uh,
2: she, the,
0: she was introduced uh, to Blaney? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Aye. So that that was a, a nice wee comparison between the t- the two films as well. The fact that there was sort of, you obviously had mother issues as well <laughs> at the same time. Except she she seemed quite nice, but you don't know that. And she's know.
2: alive, so you know. Yeah, that.
0: Frenzy two <laughs> could be you know it could cover that whole thing. But yes, it was, it was long and it was very very graphic um and I know you're not supposed to say you like it because it kind of it can paint a picture of the you but yeah it was it was shocking and I think that's exactly what he was going for and the times kind of allowed that to happen because the cinema in the 70s was a bit more open they could get away with the fact that he was going for a more sort of adult audience in terms of box office and stuff I think at that point he could do pretty much what he wanted in terms of the story because people would go and see a Hitchcock film and they would realise from the sort of pre-publicity of it that it is a a murder film, it is a lot more salacious. I mean I don't know if you've seen any of the publicity materials for this film. You know how obviously in the first scene of the film you see the body floating mm-hmm. on the murky brown water, but in the, the the wee film that Hitchcock actually made for it in the same way he did for a lot of them, it's him or a body made up to look like him floating in the water so it's it's all that you get an idea then oh this is kind of graphic this is going to be a bit different as well so yes I, I really don't want to say I enjoyed it because that's, that's going to, it's yeah. going to haunt me but
2: no. it was very well done. <laughs> yeah I think it's there's no escape from it it's very tight so you can literally see the beads of sweat across his forehead and as she's looking away to recite a prayer, it to me, every time I watch it, I'm like, I, I need out of this room because it feels like you're very, very close in on, on this that's happening. Um, interestingly, I read that they censored that scene to the extent where obviously when she's strangled and her tongue's hanging out, initially Hitchcock wanted to have a trail of drool um, coming off her tongue onto her breast. And they said, you can do everything else, but you can't have the drool, which is a very bizarre state of affairs. But... I definitely, I can see how apparently a lot, like quite a lot of actors like turned down parts in this movie, Michael Caine obviously being one of them, Helen Mirren and Hitchcock's own daughter as well, interestingly appeared in Psycho but wouldn't appear in this because she said it was so disgusting and I can see why people watching this movie, particularly for that scene it does feel very, very grubby but I think it's supposed to leave you feeling, I mean it's not a pleasant thing that's happened, I think it's supposed to leave you feeling that kind of dirty way almost as if you were in the room
1: yeah, I just find it interesting the fact that maybe as as you both mentioned, I did a sign of the times, but it's like cycle got mixed reviews at best, and this was a, a rave. And you compare how both films are, you'd think it would be their way about. You'd think this would be the one that became like shocking critics in that it shocked everybody else, like mm-hmm. actors you mentioned that didn't want to be in it. It shocked us watching it, but critics were loving it. They couldn't get enough of it.
2: Mm. Yeah, and it is strange because I do feel like it's a forgotten Hitchcock. Like, I think if you think of Hitchcock movies, this would never even cross uh, your mind to list. If you had to name 10, this would not, you know, roll off the tip of your tongue. But I just think that I I feel like I don't, I mean, obviously I don't know because I don't know Hitchcock, but I feel like this is the type of movie he was sort of gearing up to make his whole career and finally he had the freedom to do it. And he didn't want to do any more sort of, you know, Carrie Grant in a nice suit or Doris Day sings a song. He wanted to do the kind of, down and dirty
0: stuff. Yeah, definitely, yeah. you can see that. What about the comedic elements of this film? There is a a, a fair bit of it. You're t- I'm thinking specifically in terms of the police inspector and his wife, oh. and also the the scene which is set in the back of the truck as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, uh, I'm going to speak speaking the police inspector a bit quickly, and then, like I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, I was speaking about this, it, was, it felt like there was different classes in the movie. Kind of kept, uh, and like, You've got um, Richard Blaney's character was that kind of bridge between the middle class that he clearly was and the working class that he, <laughs> the world he clearly lived in, and you had that with kind of inspecting his wife as well and she's trying to kind of make him these continental dinners and that but he's just wanting to have a full English breakfast. I don't know if it really added anything to the movie, I don't know if it was deliberate kind of themes that were in sp- put in it. I don't know if it was just trying to kind of add some sort of light relief, so it wasn't totally distressing the entire time. But I didn't mind it. I, I found the scenes quite humorous. I thought it, I, I found it quite funny, personally, when she's serving the dinner, and it looked terrific. And it's like the fish head soup and stuff, or the wee tiny sparrow and things. I did laugh, and it was funny. And maybe it was a nice weekend, a welcome relief for the horror going on. But the scene in the truck. I was wondering if that was meant to be comical. Oh, yeah. you know? I, I, I don't thought about it was. So I was reading some reviews as well and it was praised for its suspense.
2: I don't actually read it as comical. I read it as it's her revenge. So she's completely powerless in the act. And actually, the graphicness of the scene with Barbara Lee Hunt, we don't get with the scene with Anna Massey. And that's fine because I don't want to see that twice. But so her sort of agency is taken away by the very fact that we don't even get to see what's happened to her. We don't even get to see how she did she put up a fight. You know, so she's completely powerless in that situation. And so by the time it gets to him scrambling around in the truck full of potatoes, you know, her last act of revenge or her only act of power is to cling on to that tie pin and to cause problems for him in the back of that truck by, you know, her Corpses, like you know, her foot's in his face and whatever. To me, that's how I read that, it's her only act of power that she can possibly have over him. But maybe I'm reading too much into it because I'm getting two completely blank faces here. So I'll just, no, I can
0: up. understand that. But what I was, the way I looked at that was kind of almost like a nod to a, like a, a carry on film. It's almost like carry on murder at that point, you know, when you get the, the foot into the face. That kind of idea, and it's funny, I'm sure it must have elicited laughs at the cinema at the time, because it's it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous yeah. thing to actually see. Yeah, I and that is what the, of a, a, a slapstick kind of element to it.
2: And that is, yeah, that's I as well, as well. Where the policeman's like, "Mate, mate, you're spilling your load." So there is that kind of like there is a kind of tongue-in-cheek element to it. And to go back to the the chief inspector, I thought that was a sort of commentary on like aspirational social classes. As well like she's trying to have these fancy french dinners and he just wants meat like he doesn't care like he just wants meat tatty's you know veg or whatever but the whole thing of food is like food is really prominent throughout it so obviously bob rusk works on the the fruit market you see the grapes getting stamped on foot she ends up in the potato sack and they all have surnames like rusk salt and barley I'm not sure what the point of that is, but you can't stop noticing food the whole way throughout it. And I, I'm not sure what, what the commentary is there, but it is really prominent.
0: could be something to do with consumption and things like that and how everybody has different tastes. And obviously Bob Rusk's tastes go to <laughs> strangulation and murder. Yes, yes.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. I liked the, the chief inspector's wife because even though, well, she she knew what she was doing when she was feeding him all these things, and uh, the way she was presenting it, and all that, and you know, she would give him opportunities to put stuff back in the bowl or whatever, you know, that kind of thing, and get rid of it. But she was actually a really good counterpoint for him because he would sit and try and mull over certain aspects of the case, and she would say, "But don't you think this? So don't you know why would he be doing that and all that?" So it was almost as if she was prompting him to sort of think a bit deeper about what was actually going on, and then. Push him in a certain direction. It's almost like a sage, <laughs> sage advice. There you go.
1: <laughs> yeah, Good. it was done in a different way. As opposed to the two of them just sitting having dinner, and then it's a really kind of forced exposition. Adding mm-hmm. in yeah. the idea of the comical aspect to the continental dinners and stuff, and then she's kind of just throwing the weak t- tidbits in. It wasn't as noticeable in a mm-hmm. very forced way, which was yeah, quite yeah. nice.
2: I also loved how when she, <laughs> she was only making a margarita. <laughs> But the two policemen are looking at each other like, and I was like, wow, she can't even make a margarita. (laughs) It's just this whole thing of like, she's just totally hopeless. But at the same time, as you say, John, she's wiser than, you know, the disgusting pig strotters and jelly that she's putting
1: out. I also took that to the fact that they're like, margaritas, what the hell is that? Just give me a whiskey and some brandy.
2: That's probably That was probably too feminine a drink for hardened coppers back in the tough old London of the 70s. I think the thing,
1: one of the things I liked about the movie as well is that Richard Blaney's character isn't really that likeable.
2: He's a dick.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a scene in the bar where he's asked for the triple brandy. He's like, asked ah, for a triple brandy.
0: This is a, this is a double brandy. And he's like, the are in the barman. <laughs> <It's just> a... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sorry, it, it, we were just marveling at another voice to your repertoire. There,
2: honestly, how I, are you not snapped up in Hollywood?
0: It's
1: I, I, I couldn't leave you to. Yep. I get offers all the time, but you know.
0: Yep. is that Pixar on the phone? <laughs> it's the ghost of Scott. <laughs> but the the character of Blaney seems to uh, he instills sort of loyalty, though. Because there are people around him who are very loyal to him, his girlfriend, and the the other character that's introduced who uh, was in the army with him as well and hides him for a short while until so there's okay. another, which he couldn't have possibly done, but he's still getting blamed for it. But everybody, like you say, everybody else around him is suspicious of him. The, the wife of the guy that takes him, and she hates him, right from her guts, uh, Billy Whitelaw, I think yeah. was the girl. She hates him. She, she, she's got no time for him at all. She doesn't want him there. And it's a case of, like, really just get out of my house, you know? Mm-hmm. think of the, the idea that in order to get away, that they were going to go to France? <laughs> you know, it, so far away, you know, let, let's escape to France to get away from him
1: For me, that was a whole in a class thing just kind of thrown back in. The fact that he, you want to escape, just go to France. Like, it was no big deal. Yeah, There's no big deal for people of that sort to just go to Paris. But I'm assuming Paris, you know, mm-hmm. probably it was France, though. Um, it didn't seem a big deal. I know London and France aren't necessarily a million miles away from each other, but still, it just didn't seem like that big a deal for them just to cross the, cross the channel and hide mm-hmm. out. And a city with its own kind of mystique about it, and especially back then, probably did look more kind of higher market. France, is, especially Paris has definitely got that kind of allure about
0: it, that mystique. Yeah, it was further away at that time because we didn't have the Channel Tunnel, so yeah. it was more difficult to get there and like I say, yeah, it was a class thing. Yeah, absolutely. So what about the the scene, the camera work and the scene just before the murder of Blaney's wife? What did you think of that? The way that he gets blamed for it and it's, it's the camera that does all the work he goes around the corner and everything and then it goes up and then the camera retreats down back into the street and all that's just amazing, really good. There's some brilliant camera shots in
1: this and it's those kind of classic tracking Hitchcock shots Yeah, it's really just kind of add tension and set the scene.
0: Yeah it's something yeah. you don't see a lot, it's something that we've seen quite a lot as we've been watching these films, he has certain style to the way and the camera moves in unusual directions as well it's not always the same we, we got a shot in cycle, for instance where the camera moves up the stairs in the house and then mm-hmm. goes above them so you, mm-hmm. and it's a way of not showing norman's mother mm-hmm. at all you don't see norman's mother's face but you you get quite a lot of that here as well the way that it's used and it's used again it's, it's in a slightly sort of voyeuristic way, but it's also telling the story. It's show don't tell basically, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
2: It's just you it just
0: gives to... that's what you it's the same process yeah. it by the
2: way. All I was going to say is it just gives the film a wee moment to breathe as well. Cause sometimes like you are sort of anticipating this build up and then the camera maybe just moves a wee bit or it either takes you away from the action or just sort of positions you slightly because basically Hitchcock's only ever going to show you, but he wants you to see. So you're right. It's about, you know, concealing a face or making you look at someone come out of an office. So it's just about positioning you exactly, you know, he's got you where he wants you, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. All I really kind of mentioned there was you don't see enough tracking shots in films these days. And for example, I was watching, you really notice it in these movies because all the films are still shot differently and cameras were totally different. And mm-hmm. set up but I was watching I'm I'm thinking of ending things last night. As I seen at a dinner table, where the camera tracks one way then tracks the other. And even that just looked totally alien because films are all cut, 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 cut. And sometimes I do find older films harder to watch because my brain has been so used to a certain way of moving. Mm-hmm. You see a shot just lingering and sitting there, the camera moving away, I'm not used to it seeing it. It's not jarring in a bad way. But it does make me think about it. Yeah, it, does think... about the, it will take about the film slightly because I'll be thinking about the camera shot. Mm-hmm. But that's not a bad thing because that's how films are, were made.
2: Yeah. And I think sometimes it's used for, like, so for example, when. Rusk takes say, Anna Massey up the stairs and you're kind, you're in front of them so they're coming up the stairs towards you and then all of a sudden the camera backtracks right back down the stairs and you're like, wait a minute, no, don't go in that room and you're literally like, you're trying to, it's almost like you're trying to get back up the stairs to sort of warn her and I think it is it's used in a way as you see, like it would have be been like cut, cut, cut and it's like that, he just allowed the sort of scenes to sort of breathe as I say, breathe in and out or just take you in of the action or take you out of it. And yet, again, you only ever get to see what he wants you to see. And I just think it's it's so well done and so cleverly used. And it's just and yeah, you're right. I have been noticing a lot more shots of stairways ever since we started watching Hitchcock movies. But it's there and it's, it's it's always used really well, I think.
1: And that's in the particular talking about a middle when it goes back out the street. Mm-hmm. And everybody just kind of go about their daily life, totally unaware that's brutal murders happening mm-hmm. right next to it, and that is really unnerving.
0: Yeah, how he does it is great. Well, that goes back to what we're talking about with psycho and bathrooms—that you're not safe in your own home, and mm-hmm. you know something can happen to you, and outside everything else is going on just as normal, and nobody really knows what's happening at all.
2: Yeah, it's it's really well done. I think it's. Um, I actually find not more unnerving because obviously the whole rape scene is really just well, makes your heart rattle in your chest but that scene you're kind of I do feel like you watch it and you're like wait what and it literally just takes you out of it and it's almost it's so quick in comparison to the length of the scene between you know Barbara Lee Hunt and his character so I think that it's almost like this is going to sound really terrible it's almost like he's sort of trying to like not tease you into wanting to see it but it's just it's it's so the polar opposite of what you've seen before and it's just over so quickly that you're just kind of like oh my god another murder's going to happen and it does kind of leave you a wee bit rattled but it's it's firmly in his control and maybe maybe that was a censorship thing maybe he couldn't show too I I don't know but I just think it's it does kind of leave you wanting a wee bit more information which is really terrible to say that loud.
1: No, and I think it's interesting you kind of mentioned the censorship idea in that as well and what it could get away with and you compare it to Psycho with getting away with a lot less mm-hmm. and even with what you do see that movie was still subject to quite a lot of cuts especially mm-hmm. with different censorship boards I think Ireland was the most famous one I and mean, it was like, f- f- like tens of feet of the film were cut from it and sometimes I think restrictions in the filmmaker can bring the best out in them uh, like Jaws for example where we can't show you the shark that doesn't work, and it adds to the movie. So yeah. they have to be creative with it, and then all of a sudden, the score represents the shark. Yeah. And we mentioned Reservoir Dogs as well. He has he shows that scene that you're getting cut off. That's getting cut for the movie, or it's getting a ridiculously high rating. So don't show it, and it adds to it. So yeah, sometimes that you don't, something that structure can help you because if, a, if they just want to do what they want to do. It may go too far.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh and um, let's be honest Hitchcock was like a raving misogynist who had a lot of money yeah. issues himself and a lot of religious uh, issues that sort of stunted his sexuality as well so part of me does kind of look at this and go oh is this the movie you want to make and you know would you have gone much further if you were allowed but yeah I think in a way maybe the, maybe the censors did him a favour.
1: <laughs> Can you imagine Hitchcock's DMs? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Worse than that toothpaste brand yeah
0: <laughs> so how quickly did you figure out that the tie pin was going to be a pivotal item within the film? I kind of figured out as soon as I saw it because everything else in the, the opening scenes, as I said at the, the top of this discussion, was grimy and dirty and very unpleasant and then you've got Bob and he's wearing this bright gold tie pin, and you're you kind of thinking, that's going to come back later. That's, got, that's going to be a, a major point in this film somewhere. And I, I know that's just because we've watched so many films in our time, you can you can spot the plot devices almost right away, and it does kind of ruin things a wee bit. But when did you realise that it was going to be so important to the story?
1: I didn't even really click on it to be fair. Um, it's not something I, can have. I, was, I was drawn towards when I was watching it. Uh, I didn't really yeah. think. All right. I
2: think. I think there's a close up of it when he's on his stall and he kind of like pats yeah. his tail or something, and then you kind of go, Yeah. Big it's, shiny. It, yeah.
1: Even after the fact, watching the film, I still do not even really kind of think about it. But you mentioned that it, 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 it is really prominent. It's a really prominent uh, accessory.
0: It seems kind of strange, doesn't it, that somebody who uses uh, ties to kill someone. Uh, would put himself in that position of having a, a tie pin that he might lose at some point. How I many ties does this guy go through? You know, it's...
2: People at Tideac will be like, sir, or I don't know, they would be like, Cor, Governor, you were in here last week by six times.
0: <laughs> um, oh, you've got a challenger now, Thomas. No, mit- <laughs> <laughs> point for the all... artist of the year. <laughs>
2: no because all of my accents are just me in a scottish accent saying things phonetically there's never <laughs> any skill to it um okay. well,
1: what about Sean, it.
2: <laughs> well he famously said if you can't do it don't it would be a distraction and i feel like my vocal talents would be a distraction on this podcast but i'm just kind what i love about the type in scene super quickly is see when he goes back to the potatoes and, and he's in the truck and he's like it's the first thing you kind of see him like grimy because he's like quite well polished and he does have the, the dazzling tie pin And what I love about it is, you know, her hands are round it like, you know, fuck you, you're not getting this back. And he he really lets go, he really lets rip. He's like, you're a bitch, this is, you know, and he's calling her for everything. And it's just like, wow, even that she, you know, the fact that she's clutching on to the tie pin that you helped murder her with, this is her fault. And I just I feel like that's when you get to see the sort of real character because he is well polished and he's very congenial and he almost sort of skips about and he's got a plum in his hand and he is that kind of like walking like a proper cockney as it were and that's the only time you see him really kind of dishevelled and dirty and you know he's he's obviously lost a little bit of like, the one tiny bit of glamour that he has on his brown suit and I just I kind of love that contrast with him for the rest of the film but yeah I mean John yeah you're right the minute, the minute you see it and it does kind of stand out again against the sort of brown suit or whatever he's wearing you're just like Hmm, that type in and it's the necktie strangler. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from Simi, who was just too busy like practicing his accents.
0: Yeah, he was yeah, probably practicing his that. Mexican accents at that point. <laughs> I, was, I was taking notes from the movie.
1: But <laughs> note for the podcast.
2: Um, what Here. do you guys think? Oh sorry, on you go. There you go. No, all I was gonna ask is the only thing that bothers me about this film is I fact not the only thing because obviously there's lots of things. The only thing that bothers me about this film, the main thing, is the ending. I find the ending really, really like ambiguous and sort of not tied up and not kind of like I don't feel like anything's really resolved. Like he sort of walks in and tries to what he tries to hit what he thinks is Rusk under the covers, and then the policeman walks in, sees him, you know, beating up a body on the bed. There's blood everywhere, and he just goes and waits for Russ to come back in with a big suitcase. Now, Rusk could easily just go, oh my God, he was homeless, he's broken into my house and he's murdered someone. I was just coming up the stairs because I was going on holiday. Like, it's so, like, nothing is tied up. And even though you know that Rusk is the guilty party, for me, it's so frustrating because I don't I don't feel like you see justice.
1: You see, I, I just took it as being the opposite, the idea that kind of, like, uh, the cop knows at this stage, because at first when the cop walks in, I can imagine going, for fuck's sake, mate, I'm trying my <laughs> best to give you the <laughs> benefit of out doubt here. <laughs> and you just keep giving me more evidence. But then when Russ walks in, he's like, hey, excuse me, Mr. Russ, where's your tie? You know, dun, dun, I mean, it ends really abruptly.
2: Uh-huh. And then just, like, uh-huh.
1: But it goes back to that kind of carry-on style that John was mentioning, where he's looking at this massive trunk with clearly body in it. And there's oh, been caught be. red handed, and there's like, yeah. it's, quite, it's, it's quite comically caught in the sense he's as well walking in
0: saying, Yeah, it was me. <laughs> he's well, well handing himself in at that point. That was done very deliberately. There was a version of that where he gets caught and he basically just goes, oh, Yeah, right, I'm caught, fair enough. And Hitchcock said, No. You don't do that you don't drop your shoulders you don't show any emotion you just accept it you just drop the trunk nothing else because if you if you look at barry foster there he shows very little emotion it's it's almost yeah. like he's just going i've had enough gov you know i'm done I, i've tried to <laughs> cover up my tracks as much as possible i can't do any more and he's just yeah it's probably it's probably a way off his mind to be perfectly honest so that's the way that they kind of approached it that it was very ambiguous and it just ended because you know why would he show remorse he, he's, he wasn't remorseful at any point during the film and if you think about it, the very last scene he was trying to cover up the latest one and yeah, it was getting more yeah. and more out of hand if you, if you like because yeah. it was good the the murders were happening all over the place within sort of the the, the borough that they, they stayed in but they were getting closer and closer to home the last two were in his flat Mm-hmm. Which he obviously didn't. The first one he obviously could get away with because he had time in order to cover it up and get rid of the body. And even that caused problems when he was actually getting rid of the body. And he obviously, we're talk, we talked about the tie and everything. But this one was very quick. And therefore, he was struggling. It wasn't organized in any way. So it was almost like he was at the end of his tether. He just couldn't take anymore. They just yeah. say that
2: about single killers, don't they? They get sloppier the more yeah. they go on
0: it's a discipline thing they they get more they, there's oh, it's well documented that the frequency increases because they don't get the same thrill from it that they, they mm-hmm. used to there's not the same satisfaction so therefore they have to do it more often to try and get that that buzz or whatever and I'm obviously not speaking from a, <laughs> a position <laughs> of uh, like total understanding of this this is all anecdotal yeah. from my conversations in the dark web
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah, I just, I, the, the ending is, it, it does bother me though. I mean, I get like he has getting sort of, as you see, like sloppier and he's got like the big, like fuck off trunk going up the stairs with it right. and stuff like that. But the ending, I, it kind of annoys me because I'm just like, he could, he could, I mean, he's charming. He's a charming character and he could charm his way out of this. And it literally isn't. Like, the credits just kind of like woof up the screen and it's, it's really fast. And I do, yeah, it does kind of frustrate me because it's, there's no justice in it. I mean, Blaney's not a particularly nice character, as you've said, Simi, anyway, so it's not like you go through the film feeling great sympathy for him, but he has obviously gone to prison for something that he's not done. But I just feel like the ending, like, I just feel like Russ could talk his way out of it. it. There's no closure for me.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean, but I, I think I can take the interpretation of what John was saying as well, that at that point he's not even going to try. He's like, ah, uh, I'm caught. And know maybe there's a part of him as well, annoyed that he wasn't getting the credit. <laughs> that's <laughs> true are, yeah
2: my murders
1: yeah no i get it yeah. you know it's interesting that happened with uh, peter sutcliffe in a way because somebody else was getting the credit for the killers uh, the murders because um, there was a prank phone calls where people thought it was actually the yorkshire ripper calling up the police and the radio stations and stuff but it was some just crank phone caller I think it was a t-side area let's just say t-side t- 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 and I think it was kind of like a, a, kind of job to cell accent. So people, the, the cops actually believed that that was the area they should be looking in for this killer. for threw them, of course,
0: because mm-hmm. of this current court. not never found out who the person was either. They didn't.
2: That's crazy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we're all so yeah, much um, more educated nowadays, aren't we? Sorry, Mary, you think?
2: No. Um, yeah, I just, I I know it's creepy and I know that the ending does bother me, but I... I do really love this movie. I think it's like Hitchcock on drugs. I think there's so much of it that's a classic Hitchcock movie and there's so much of it that's just his own I mean, personal issues with, with women and, and that sort of thing. But I do, I really like it. And I think it's, I almost feel like it's kind of a shame that it maybe doesn't get talked about as much because like you always, you know, Hitchcock's a women-hater psycho and that's like, you know, it's always kind of given straight away as the example. It's like, if you want to see a really dirty secrets, you should go and watch Frenzy. I think it's much worse.
1: Yeah, I figured it This is Hitchcock on cocaine. <laughs> Yeah. and nobody's telling him what he can't do to an extent anyway and in this stage this is almost like a uh, this is a film he wants to make <laughs> that yeah. sounds really dark but yeah it's like uh, near the end of his career as well and um, he's one more film after this he's just he's just balls to the wall <laughs> get me with.
2: Yeah. And I just wonder now, like if if a film like, I mean, obviously there have been films like, you know, Irreversible and stuff like that, where there have been quite sustained and The Nightingale, obviously, where there's been really kind of graphic rape scenes and stuff like that now. But you do wonder if if a film like this would get made now and if and if actors would want to be involved, because obviously quite high profile actors turned this one down, and that was back in the, what you would call a sort of fairly liberal, you know, sexually liberal, you know, 70s or whatever. And you do wonder if a type of film like that has a place in contemporary cinema and you know would people want to be involved with something that's seen as you know quite gratuitous because it's not artsy it's not like irreversible where it's got that beautiful non-linear construct and it's or like you know to a certain extent the nightingale where it's got a narrative about you know indigenous peoples and women's rights and stuff like that it's just a almost like, not a dirty picture but you know what i mean it's just this guy hates women not, and so oh, there's you're no right. kind of real, you know, there's no sort of morality to it and you just wonder if if it would have a if somebody would want to get involved in something like that now
1: yeah, the risk of sounding really kind of pretentious. Um, like I say, I like thought some cracking shots in that in this movie, but there's maybe less artistic merit in it. Yeah. Compared to these like, compared to Cycle, for example.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It feels yeah. more I wouldn't say as far as a grindhouse movie, but it's probably not far away from it.
0: True. Yeah. It would be difficult to get something like this made now. It really would. It wouldn't be tackled in the same way. Just I I, I think you're right. I, I couldn't see it really happening now. And the, the way that it's been presented back yeah. in 1972.
2: Yeah, and it all just kind of comes back to that barmaid who gets like really excited about the fact that these women potentially get raped and that's what always kind of yeah. sticks in my head. Yeah, and there's that scene the
1: <laughs> top the she talks about getting fingered. I'm like, did I
2: hear that right? <laughs> but but there I are, but I, I, yeah, I feel like though, that there is a lot, like as I say, the, the spill your load thing, the fact, I feel like there's lots of sexual jokes in that. And I think that's quite deliberate. I don't think that, I don't think you've misheard that or misinterpreted that. I think that's quite a deliberate. Like, did he just say that? And then you're like, oh yeah, he did. And that kind of sets the tone for this the movie. Yep,
0: totally.
1: Well, it's very it's a very interesting film in the way that it is of its time, but at the same time, it kind of transcends transcends it in terms of what British cinema was in the early seventies. It is very grimy and gritty and dirty, as mentioned. I liked it. I'd never seen it before. I'd never heard of it until I saw this box set. For me, it's a little of Hitchcock film, but like I said at this, the start of this, it's very critically acclaimed. I saw it as being one of his a return to form, so to speak. But yeah, I would recommend this. John?
0: Totally, yes. As I said, I went into it with sort of negative feelings about it from the first 10-15 minutes and what I'd read about it. But Yep, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a, a, a very, very good Hitchcock film and, yeah, I would recommend it for anybody. Especially yeah. a nipple guy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, feel about like a nipple. Yep. This film does not
1: disappoint.
2: Yep. Yeah, you know, i, I this is like feather or 6 watch for me. I really love this movie. It is, it's, it's Hitchcock on drugs. It's dirty, it's grimy, it's grubby and I kind of love it for that reason. Interesting.
1: I'm trying to kind of... It's like Psycho's kind of like uh, Hitchcock meeting the family and then Lass is like, uh, this is Hitchcock in the Sheets. <laughs> <laughs> psycho
2: in the Streets,
1: Frenzy in the Sheets. <laughs> there we go, that's what I was trying to say. Oh, yeah.
2: uh,
1: that concludes another Hitchcock special by, by us. If you would like to get in contact and discuss Psycho, Frenzy, any other our films, we have spoiled any potential CG kills you may follow on Twitter or know from some of your favourite David Fincher films, please let us know uh, on social media at Movie Scramble, on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and you can email us at an email address that I have once again (laughs) forgot. Podcast Ah.
2: at moviescramble.co.uk
1: There we go, there we go. And if you
2: are a kinky cannibal, you can slide into our Instagram DMs as well.
1: Yeah, slide slide into our DMs and let us know if you like eating the still-beating heart of swans. (laughs) And I must add, if people do not understand the context of that, do not take it out on me. Do your research, people. We've left you the clues. We've left you the hints. It's up to you to now do the work. And for that, I will say goodbye into the next one actually no what are we doing next mary a uh, rope mention-
2: and strangers in a train
1: excellent uh before we go into that have you both of you seen both these films yes yes i haven't seen strangers in a train
2: the theme is cocky bastards
1: mm. interesting i kind of like that i've seen rope i watched rope last year but um Love. yeah Look forward to it. So until next time, thanks everybody for tuning in, for downloading, for streaming, listening, wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether it be iTunes, on YouTube, or any Android um, applications such as CastBox or PocketCast. Thank you for continuing to support us during these hard times, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye.
2: Bye. Bye.